Welcome to the podcast of The Plague Year. I'm your host, Terry Shoemaker. Podcast for The Plague Year is a deeper dive into contributions made to the Journal of The Plague Year, a project of Arizona State University. Available online, the archive allows anyone to submit artifacts regarding life during the COVID-19 pandemic. Mining the many photos, videos, reflections, and other submissions to the archive, this podcast, Podcast of the Plague Year selects some interesting topics and explores the world of the pandemic life. Join us as we journey across the world to see how the pandemic has influenced the daily lives of people everywhere. Many aspects of life have changed drastically due to the pandemic. Social distancing, face masks, and limiting our interactions are common now. We're learning to set aside what we thought of as normal in many ways. One loss is particularly noticeable when searching through the Journal of the Plague Year Archive, sports. Both athletes and fans alike are affected, and the pandemic has shown how important sports are to the American culture. Seasons have been canceled, the Olympics have been postponed, and athletes are slowly returning to play in empty stadiums. In my academic research, I've thought about how the absence of sports might affect our societies across the globe. In order to get a good perspective, I discussed this topic with Victoria Jackson, a brilliant sports historian and clinical assistant professor at Arizona State University. So I am here with Victoria Jackson, who is a colleague of mine at Arizona State University. Thank you for speaking with us. And uh, I'm just hoping you can just take a moment to introduce yourself and your work that you do so well uh, with the topic of sports studies. Thanks. I'm a clinical assistant professor of history at ASU, and I'm a sports historian. I use sport as a window into the broader society. And since I'm a historian, you know, that changes over time. And we, you know, dive into different times and places to see how sport both reflects and influences the society in which it exists. I spent a lot of time looking at how um, bodies are sites of power discourses, that the power dynamics we see in a broader society often play out most explicitly on the bodies of athletes because sports are about bodies. And I want to start with a really broad question and, and just see where your stream of consciousness goes for us on this. Uh, and the question is, can can you just speak to the importance of sports in the American society? We, we can think of this in um, two primary ways. Sport is important to two categories of people, I guess. And the first would be athletes, and the second would be fans. And this relationship that both athletes and fans have with sport is something that really matters and we should take seriously. So when it's shockingly ripped away, we need to be really careful in how we think about the well-being of those athletes and those fans because they've experienced a profound loss. This spring, we had collegiate athletes, high school athletes, club sport athletes, professional athletes have their seasons canceled and in a very quick succession of cancellations. We had an Olympic Games postponed by a year. That That is devastating to people who've been training and had kind of a singular focus for, in some cases, that four-year cycle. So you're, you're planning your life around preparing for an event that happens once every four years. And for that to be disrupted, 
when elite athletes are so finely tuned, they take so much of what they do so seriously, it's a 24 seven job. So I just very much worry about our athletes around the world, their health and well being when something they've become dependent upon and relied upon is taken away. And for team sport athletes, that regular dose of adrenaline and dopamine and all those feel good vibes you get from practicing with your friends, and you can't practice with your friends anymore, your identity is disrupted, your sense of self is disrupted. And so I, I hope our athletes are able to process this and also emote around it. It's okay to grieve this loss. And then the same thing goes for fans. Fans develop attachments and identities and relationships with the, the clubs and the teams they support. And so to have that taken away is equally potentially devastating, especially when it's those connections that we form with others too. And then, you know, the the people who you might not have close relationships with, but you know that there's other fans around the world watching your team and your relationship with the team itself, you know, when that goes away, things can become very, very challenging. As Victoria and I discussed, the absence of sports is a huge loss for many professional and amateur athletes around the world. Digging into the Journal of the Plague Year, there are numerous contributions giving voice to this loss. There are images of empty basketball courts and baseball fields, and one contributor discusses the frustrations of missing a season on her high school swim team. In the midst of lost seasons, the contributions to the archive compelled me to think about what kinds of successes might be out there related to sports. Could I find evidence of success stories related to sports despite the pandemic? What's it like to be an athlete during the pandemic? My search led me to Leo Dashboff, a high school runner who during the pandemic became only the 11th high school student to run a sub four minute mile. Hey, we're here with Leo Dashball. And uh, Leo, thanks so much for joining me today. If you'll just introduce yourself for our listeners. So I'm Leo Dashbaugh. I run cross-country track and field, and I was the 11th American high schooler to run sub four minutes in the mile. Can you talk a little bit about how COVID-19 affected your first, I guess, your official high school training and races, and then secondly, about how it affected your individual personal training? I think the biggest thing is just everything being canceled in terms of all meets. We could no longer meet as a team. Our coach couldn't host practices. He was able to send out training to the runners. Can I interrupt you real quick? What do you mean he was able to send training? Is he saying like today go run eight by 400 or whatever? Yeah, exactly. Because we have a, a big group, basically, like he can post messages and stuff to the whole team and be like, hey, guys, try to get in um, running. And he can post motivational stuff for us. And, and what was that like? It's your senior year. By this time, had you already signed with a university? Yes, I'd already signed with Washington. I think that was that was really lucky for me because, you know, I think a lot of kids kind of ride on that last senior season to, to lay down times and, and finally get committed to a college. And so I think a lot of people got hit hard by by that. And so the, the pandemic happens, you're secure in knowing your college future. But what's your what's your initial feelings? Do you remember like, what was it like to hear you weren't going to get to run the end of your senior year? Honestly, it was just, I was just sad. I wasn't like mad or, or stressed or anything. I was really just just flat out just really depressed for probably three days before I started to um, just kind of change 
my goals and mentality. Yeah. So the, the shutdown happens, the sadness kind of hits you and what was the adjustment like, I guess, and you have, and where did you find your motivation to continue your training? It was just changing the goals um, and the mentality, I think, because, you know, I obviously had a plan for the season races I wanted to compete at, but um, with all that gone, I knew that, you know, I'd already put in a few months of some of the most consistent training I've ever done. And so I really didn't want to throw any of that away. And I was just really looking forward to all the work I was going to put in the season. And so I just kind of changed my mentality and was like, okay, well, I can't do this, this, this. But the one thing I can do by myself without anyone is I can, I can train and I can try to run sub four on my own. It was pretty tough at first because obviously all the tracks got closed down. So the first couple of weeks I was running on dirt tracks, but they were not very good. And I started to get, I started to get little injuries that were going to start growing if I kept doing the type of workouts I was doing on them. And so from that point on, I was just having to hop fences to get onto tracks. And um, I think I got kicked off probably seven times. I think for motivation wise, I just kind of found the motivation because when it comes down to this sport and, and how good I want to be, even with the cancellation of this season, I knew that, you know, there was still going to be next next fall for cross country in college. And so I knew that every bit of training it and would make me better next cross season and next track season. Yeah. So I, I guess maybe your long-term goals maybe helped you set aside the sadness for one lost season. And so were you able to do any like unofficial time trials before you were invited to uh, the race in California? Yeah, I was able to do two miles and one 800 by myself. And so then bring me into kind of the race, Quarantine Classico. And it was May 26th. And they invite some of the top runners from the country to come in and they're going to do this thing no, no matter if there's a pandemic or what, right? Yeah. It was put together by high schoolers, like a couple kids that wanted to go for sub four. They were the ones who they even got all the track officials and the media to all come out. When you ran that day, what was your feelings kind of going into it? Was it, I'm going to break four minutes? Was it, I'm going to win this? Like, what was your mentality and goal going into it? In training for it, I was always just thinking like, I want to go in and I want to break four and I want to win that race, you know. But once that day came, there's, I just felt like there was so much pressure just because, you know, it was the only thing, only race that's happened all season. And so, you know, every single track athlete was just all over it. And so it also just felt like, you know, with the whole pandemic going on in the quarantine, not only did everyone want me to break four that day, but they like needed me to. And I think that pressure started to get to me and I started to think I need to do this for everyone and so then like I ended up getting to the race and I had just like a big migraine and I was feeling a little sick to my stomach and so I just kind of like totally changed my mentality it was just like I just kind of changed the plan and I was just like I'm just gonna sit back and do my best to try to just win the race yeah so I watched the video and it's all over YouTube now watching Track races sometimes aren't the most exciting things to watch, but I absolutely have to say like watching that race was absolutely spectacular, particularly in the sense that, I mean, one, I knew you. And so like, I felt like watching it, you had a real strategy of trying to like stick with the pack 
and and you kept your strategy until that that last half lap and man the kick at the end was absolutely amazing like what's going through your mind when you make that turn and you can see the clock you know i i had a very specific plan going to that race and i i stuck to it to a t you know like you said it was just kind of sit in at first and then once we hit 500 meters to go that was when I planned on making my first move, which is just a little surge to either lead or sit right on whoever was leading. And I remember coming across that 500 and the announcer saying they need to run 127 for the last 600 in order to hit the mark. It's a four. I remember just him saying that and me just thinking, dude, I can do that. Once we hit 250, I was just like, this is the plan and this is when I need to go. I need to go right now. I have enough juice to get me all the way to the line from here. I crossed 100 meters, and I remember reading the clock, and it said 346, and I just thought, I can close this distance in 13 seconds. The main mentality at that point was just, just send it. Have you replayed it in your mind over and over again? Yeah, I've seen it quite a few times. It helps that I keep doing you know podcasts like this where they ask me about that last 100 meters. My last question really about the race, you know, you're the lead of these elite high school athletes. And at the end, it's like nobody wants to rest. They all want to get to you. And from what I can tell, like, congratulate you. Is that is that the sentiment on the track? They were kind of excited that they were part of it, too. Yeah, I think even though it was a race and a competitive environment, we were all kind of there for the same purpose, which was to get to go sub four. And obviously, I think some of the guys... Even though they were a little disappointed they didn't do it, they were stoked that someone had done it, you know? I'm really, you know, I'm grateful that I'm, I was the one who got under there, but if I had been in any of their places, I would have done the same thing, you know, just kind of just been happy that, you know, any, any one of us had done it. Do you think it helps your mentality going forward as a runner that if you can do this on your own training during a pandemic, that the sky's the limit for what you can do in the future now? Yeah, I mean... Honestly, I just keep surprising myself every season. So even though I, I always I dream big and then I do crazy things like this and I'm like, how in the heck did I do that? I can do so much more. After speaking with Leo, I kept thinking about the emotional aspects of sports for athletes and fans alike. Rebroadcasts of sporting events just aren't the same as spectating for the first time or attending a game or sporting event. Where are we in bringing sports back? Is it safe? Which sports are returning? I reconnected with Victoria to ask her thoughts on these questions. You also mentioned this idea of that there are some sports that have returned, some of them in modified form, whether that's cardboard fans in the stadiums or, you know, how they actually play the game. Most of the sports that we're seeing returning are other places across the globe. Is that correct? And the U.S. is kind of lagging behind in some of this. The first return was the Bundesliga in Germany. And the Frauen Bundesliga, the women's league, returned shortly after the men, which was great to see. And so they've been playing for months now. And um, other European leagues, Spain, the Premier League, and England have returned. I think that the place where we can look and feel the worst about the current situation in the U.S. and how we've done so poorly navigating this pandemic is New Zealand. They allowed fans back in stadiums when there had been no new positive case in New Zealand in over three weeks. So they're like fully back. 
What's super awesome about the United States is that surprisingly, I think something no one would have predicted if told about this years in the past that this would be happening, a women's professional sports league was the first to return. The NWSL, the National Women's Soccer League, started its season, which is a modified tournament, and they had good TV ratings for that game. Yeah, and I know many of the American sports are planning a return. If I'm correct, the WNBA is saying they're going to have a shortened season and the NBA is having a modified kind of postseason. Has has baseball reached an agreement for uh, a return? All three of these leagues, the WNBA, the NBA, and uh, Major League Baseball had been planning to uh, organize these modified seasons or shortened tournaments in Florida, which is much like Arizona, <laughs> one of these out of control, we've lost control hotspots. And then we have this intersection with the racial justice protests and movements going on where an increasing number of athletes are saying they're opting out of this season so that they can focus on advocacy and and work, Um, whether it's with other organizations or their own organizations, they think this moment is time to step away and, and do the work for their communities. Yeah, I'm seeing a lot of that in the WNBA. Exactly what you're talking about. Players have announced, yes, there may be a modified season, but I won't play. This is a time for me to stand up for my community and work for social justice and equality. Are, are you seeing that more in the WNBA than you are the NBA? Yeah, this is this is the women. And Maya, Maya Moore really started it, focusing on criminal justice reform before the pandemic, before um, the most recent moment stimulated by Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd in this much longer Black Lives Matter movement. Then players across many different teams decided not to play. It's women athletes who, who've been both organizing on college campuses, the, the Black athletes that we've been seeing across all the regions of the United States, and then also professional athletes. So this is this is an interesting segue, I think, to, to think about, kind of flip the script a little bit of thinking about, yes, there is a moment where we're, we're losing seasons of sports, whether that's professional or amateur, lots and lots of sports absence uh, that we're experiencing now. But do you think that this moment is maybe an opportune time to reconsider some of our priorities as it pertains to certain sports? Absolutely. Both because of the pandemic and also because we're having this reckoning right now in our country and talking about systemic racism and protesting, you know, for black lives in our streets. And sports are part of institutional racism in the United States. Professional sports, I would argue collegiate sports even more so. So I uh, wrote a, a piece for the Boston Globe that ran about a week ago where I call on American universities to cancel the fall football season and take the year to conduct an honest appraisal of the role that their football programs play in perpetuating racial inequality and injustice, especially um, the schools that play in what we call the Power Five conferences. So the biggest of the big time college football programs, the Pac-12 conference where ASU exists, these schools generate so much money, especially from football, and the money that goes to the athletes themselves that bring in all this income is artificially restricted at scholarships. And the athletes playing those sports are majority black, and they're not graduating. All the people around this industry are making lots of money off those players. But it but it's bigger than that. This is all taking place within higher education. 
And I really think football in particular represents a ticking time bomb. We know more about chronic traumatic encephalopathy, the brain disease that results from repeated hits to the head. Schools need to think about if they really want to continue to sponsor a student activity that contributes to to brain injury. They should also take the year and listen to players' grievances and criticisms of an amateur model that no longer fits the reality of Power 5 football. We've got a growing athletes' rights movement and a building body of legal antitrust challenges to this amateur model. And instead of fighting that and pouring all this money into that battle, I think it's time to take a step back and and really think about what this is. I also think, you know, university leaders need to question if American universities should continue to serve as the sole pathway in minor league for the NFL. Every single pick in the last two NFL drafts came from the NCAA. And then finally, it's higher education. We need to fix the racially disparate educational outcomes that are taking place on our campuses. This is institutional racism. When you have majority black teams entertaining majority white student bodies and majority white fans in colleges, and those athletes are are not graduating when we're projecting to the world that this is a great trade-off. It's it's a world-class educational experience, but that's not what football players are receiving in the realities of their lived experiences on college campuses. That is so much to think about. And uh, that piece is at Boston Globe that she referenced. Uh, and I highly recommend giving that a read over and considering Victoria's arguments. So Victoria, I have one, one final question for you. And this is uh, more personal as far as you as a runner. Have you been able to maintain running during the pandemic? Oh my goodness. I'm so lucky that I have. I've been able to run almost every day. It's proven to me how much running matters to me to get that hour, two hours um, when I can to get out the door and spend time moving. And we're lucky that although Arizona is a hot spot, we do have so much wide open space here and so many trails that we can get out and run. Uh, well, Victoria, thank you so much for speaking with us. And uh, your work is absolutely fascinating. And I, I wish you the, the best as, as you continue running during the pandemic. The loss of sports is just another example of the changing new normal of the COVID-19 world. We discuss the impact of losing sports, the effect of that loss on both athletes and fans, and how we begin to bring sports back into our lives. This loss can be harmful to athletes' physical and mental health, as well as cause an increased feeling of isolation for fans. To get greater insight into this, we spoke with a high school runner whose canceled season didn't stop him from breaking a record by running an under four-minute mile during the pandemic. We talked with him about how quarantine has affected his training and the significance of losing a season. Although the pandemic has been difficult, the slow return of sports might bring some semblance of normalcy back into our lives. If you're listening and you've missed sports or a season, please consider contributing your story to the Journal of the Plague Gear archive. Be sure to include the hashtag Lost Seasons so that your story will be included with similar stories. Many thanks to our guests in this episode, Victoria Jackson and Leo Dashbaugh. This episode was hosted by Terry Shoemaker, produced and edited by Amelia Michelson, graphic designed by Carson Shoemaker, administered by Eli Tabeau, and music by Quentin Daly. This podcast for the Plague Year is a compliment to the Journal for the Plague Year. 
a project of Catherine O'Donnell and Mark DeBow, both faculty at Arizona State University's School for Historical, Philosophical, and Religious Studies.